Thank you guys so much. What a blessing that is. You know, I, I uh, just want to say just really quickly how appreciative I am to our band and Ashley and everybody else for all they do every single week. Are, are you appreciative of them? I am so grateful for them. You know, last week we began to study the life of Samson, and we were looking uh, really particularly about the circumstances that was surrounding his birth. And more specifically, we were looking at the people to whom he was sent to save and the God who sent him. And in the beginning of chapter 13, what we really see is just a clear picture of the gospel played out last week. We see a group of people who are absolutely saturated in sin and a God who is absolutely saturated in grace, who chooses to forgive those sinners. And we saw a clear picture of that. Well, this morning, we want to really just continue on with our study of uh, the life of Samson. And today, we really want to focus in on uh, really the response of Samson's parents after the angel of the Lord appears to them and tells them that they're going to have a baby and that this baby just so happens to going to, he's going to save Israel. And so we're going to take a look at that. And when we begin to unpack the chapter, as I did this last week, there's just one word that just keeps coming back over and over again. It's not found in the text, but it keeps bleeding in the text. And what I mean by that is, 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 is the word faith. We just keep seeing wonderful examples of faith. Now, you and I know how important faith is, right? We understand that it's absolutely essential to every aspect of the Christian life. Salvation is not possible apart from faith. Sanctification, not, a pos- not possible apart from faith. Uh, we understand that if you were to take all of Christianity and really have one word that would really capture the essence of it, it would be what? It might be faith or grace, but faith specifically. Now, faith is so important to all of us, but what's interesting is how confusing the word can be to so many of us, right? It seems like so many people, we just throw that word faith out all the time, and sometimes we don't even really know how to define the word. A lot of people have a lot of questions concerning faith, like, do I have it? Do I have saving faith? Or what does it look like? Or what is it, um, can I have faith and still have doubt simultaneously? Is that still true saving faith? And so there are a lot of questions that we ask. But this particular passage before us in chapter 13, I think it answers uh, one of those very important questions. I think it answers the question, what does true faith look like? What does true faith actually look like when it's lived out in a believer's life? And I think this passage throws us a three, uh, shows us at least three marks of what true faith looks like. Let's go through those, and then very quickly, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. First of all, true faith takes God at his word. True faith takes God at his word. Now, where we're picking up is, is an angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mother. She uh, he tells her um, that she's going to have a baby, and then she, he leaves her with just a few instructions on what she ought to do in raising that child. Now, in verse 6, we find her uh, going back to her husband, finding her husband, letting her know uh, what message she has now received from God. And we see that play out in verse 6. The Bible says, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, 
So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, what we see here is an incredible act of faith on the part, true faith on the part of Samson's mother. She hears, an angel of the Lord appears to her. He speaks to her the word of God and she believes it hook, line, and sinker. She doesn't even look back. She believes it fully and completely. Now, when I say that, some of you might be sitting back going, well, big deal. I mean, if an angel of the Lord appeared to me, all right, and told me that God had told me something, gave me a direct word from God, I wouldn't have any problem um, believing it either. But we see historically that that hasn't always been the case with God's people. We look to the Old Testament, and we see people of great faith, Abraham and Sarah, and an angel of the Lord appears to them and says, hey, you're going to have a baby, and there's Sarah in the tent doing what? Laughing, not from joy, but in ridicule and unbelief. She doesn't believe that this is possible. We go to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, and there we see the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's uh, birth, and Zechariah, his dad, is ministering there in the temple. The, an angel appears to him and tells him, hey, guess what? Your wife's going to have a baby, and the Bible says that he, he doesn't believe. Now, what's interesting is this woman believes in even a greater level of uncertainty. In those two situations, it appears as though they knew very well that this was an angel of the Lord that was coming to tell them this news. Here, she's not even sure who this guy is. In fact, she turns to her husband and she says, he, he, he was like the appearance of, <coughs> excuse me, like the appearance of an angel of God. She didn't really know whether he was an angel or, or who he was, but she did know that the words that he was speaking were the words of God, and she believed it. Now, my mind sits there and goes, why, did she, why would she believe that these particular things were the word of God? And my mind immediately goes to John chapter 10, verse 27, where the scriptures, Jesus himself says, my sheep know my voice. She knows that this is, she doesn't know who this messenger is, but she knows the word of her father. She knows the word of her shepherd when she hears it, and she takes it into herself, and she believes it fully. She takes God at his word, even though it's in the midst of uncertainty, and it's actually in the midst of a very difficult time. It's within a great deal of difficulty. Here's a woman who was not able to conceive a child. I want to, I want to, deal with this very, very gently if I can, because for me, in, in my ministry of working with people, sometimes there's nothing more painful than a woman who desperately wants to have a child, but just can't do it. And some of you may have experienced that thing. You may be experiencing it right now. And so here's a woman who does what everybody else has done. She goes to the doctors. She prays. She, she confesses all of her sins. She does everything she can to God, hopefully that God would grant her a child till she comes to the point where she believes that it's an impossibility in her life. And she has to deal with that. She has to come to that realization. But then when she thinks everything is over and done, an angel comes to her and tells her, you're going to have a baby, when in her heart she knows that it's impossible. So here she is in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of difficulty. She receives the word of God, and she takes God fully at his word. Now, if you know, and you, because I know you guys are students of the word, you might be looking at this and saying, how do you know that she believed? Because nowhere in there does she say, and she believed. It's not written there. It doesn't say, oh, man, all of a sudden her heart was filled with joy and filled with hope, and she began to praise God like we see back with Mary in the New Testament. We don't, we don't see any of that. You say, how do you know that she believed? We know she believed because of the actions that she took the actions that she took. Remember what we've learned about the word of God over and over. Please hear this, if nothing else, that true faith is not demonstrated by what you merely think. It's true faith is not based merely on what you feel. 
True faith is demonstrated in what you do and how you respond to the truth that you say that you believe. And here she responds to the truth that she received. She said, you're going to have a baby. Here's how you're going to raise him. And when we look uh, at his life, what we'll find out as we read ahead is that she held to what, for the most part, held to what the angel had told her to do. What did he tell her to do? He said that she needs to raise him under the Nazarite vow. Now, let me explain that for a second. You say, what in the world is the Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow was made by an individual who was seeking special help from the Lord. Or they were being set apart for a specific purpose unto God for a particular reason. And oftentimes, the way that they would show that they were taking that vow is they refused to cut their hair. Uh, they wouldn't eat certain foods that were deemed unclean. They would be very careful not to come into contact with any person that was dead or anything that was dead, which is wise for all of us, even those not underneath the Nazarite vow. Uh, but she wouldn't come into contact with any of that. And, uh, and so what happens is the person is usually the one who takes the vow themselves. But here we see a mother that by faith, knowing this child is going to come, she doesn't take of any alcohol. She doesn't eat of anything unclean. And she's going to raise her child underneath this promise. Why? Because she believes fully and completely. It's a demonstration of great faith. Now, the question, the, it's such a simple point, And the application is so simple but I think we really just have to unpack it a little bit. Here's the question. Same question I have to ask myself. Demonstration of true faith, taking God at his word. Do I take God at his word? Now, let's be sure we understand who we are. Okay, we are Southern Baptists, and we do go to Celebration Baptist Church, which means we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is, right, do this, right? We believe the Bible is the holy, inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. We believe that all of it is profitable for salvation and for growth in Christ. Amen. I mean, you get lots of amens. Let's just pretend we're one of those churches for a minute, right? It's the holy, inspired, infallible, and errant word. Amen. Oh, man. Man, see that? You feel the power? All right, in that? And, uh, and we believe all of it, yes? We believe it from the introduction to the maps? All right, I don't know what they say. See, I, that's why we can't be one of those. Because I can't do it well, all right? So, but we agree with all these things. We're all about the book. We're ready to fight anybody who says it's not completely authoritative. When we come to the Word of God, we, we dissect it, uh, phrase and, and chapter and verse, and we're in it. And we, we believe this Word, and we believe it's, it, it, within it contains all that God would have for us. Okay, we get that. But let me still ask you the same question. Do you take God at His Word? And see, it's the question that I had to ask myself. Believe it or not, I preach this to me all week before I deliver to you, all right? And I've got to figure out, Mike, do you believe God's word? Do you take him at his word? Here's my answer. Sometimes. Because sometimes it's much easier than other times. Sometimes it's very easy for me to see that he is a God of love, and he is a God of grace, and he is a God... That, that loves me and has a plan for me and a plan to prosper me. I mean, it's just kind of like some of those days. Have you ever, I know, I, I, I got to ask this. You ever have one of those days where everything comes together? Some of you are negative Nancys. You're never going to get this, all right? So, but, but, but some of the rest of you know this, where everything really just kind of comes together and it's just good. It's like you go by and get a breakfast burrito and the eggs are cooked just perfect. And you know it's going to be a good day. And when you woke up, your kids, it's like 9 o'clock and there's been no major fallout right? Their heads aren't caught on fire, right? Or anything. And you're like, wow, this is a good day. Things are really going well with your spouse. Guys, you know what that means? You look at her and you're like, man, she looks good, right? I mean, she just looks good. And she looks at you and she does that little wink thing. And you're like, man, this is an awesome day. You go to work 
and your staff shows up on time, man, it's a good day, right? And you show up on time. You don't even feel like you're in a rush. All these wonderful things are happening. And it's easy for me to be able to get into the office and sit down and really reflect on the word when it says that God is a good God. And I look back and I go, he is good. And then you have days where you sit there and go, you know what? There are days that are far more uncertain, far more difficult, and I just personally have a much more difficult ability to really grasp and get my arms around and to receive God at face value for what he is ultimately saying. Because there are things in my life and there are things in your life that we look at and we have no idea how in the world this is a demonstration of God's goodness to us. We have no idea how in the world he's going to fulfill Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We have no idea how that's going to work. But the truth of the matter is, is true faith takes God at his word, no matter how difficult or no matter how uncertain or no matter how I feel, I believe his word because I take it at face value. Amen? Amen. See, that didn't even hurt, did it? All right, number two. True faith, not only, so first of all, we see that true faith takes God at his word. But number two, true faith trusts general principles. That sounds like a really odd point, and I try to reword it a million times, but that's what you have, all right? True faith trusts uh, general principles. Verse 8, we pick up there. What we find here is that it's not only Samson's mother that is a woman of faith, it's Samson's father, Manoah, who's a great man of faith. Now notice verse 8. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Now there's some commentators who have said, have given really Manoah a bad rap here. He says he's demonstrating a lack of faith. He, he should have just been okay with, his, with what his wife said. He didn't have to call on God again. He had received the word of God. He doesn't need to hear it again or, or, or any more specifics like that. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. He believes full well that God is going to do what he said he was going to do, that they are going to have a child and they are going to raise them. He, what he wants is many times what you and I want. See if you can recognize this. What he wants is, is not just the generals. He wants a little bit more sp- specifics on how this is all going to come about. He wants to know specifically how is he going to go about raising or, or to raise his child, and how is this child going to be used of God to be able to save Israel? How are these things going on? And so what we find is he asks God, and God very graciously hears his prayer, the scriptures say, which is amazing in and of itself, and, and, and he answers his prayer at least in part because he sends this messenger back, this one that we know is the angel of the Lord, and, and he appears to his wife. Uh, Manoah's not there, of course, men, not where they need to be. And so she goes and gets him, brings him back to this man, to this angel of the Lord, and he begins to ask him questions. Verse 11. And, and so his dad asks, says, Samson's dad asks, are, the man, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is it? to be this child's manner of life, and what is his mission? You see where he's going there? Because I, I just need some more information. We gave me some good basics. Give me a little bit more specifics, will you? Here's how the angel responds to him, all right? It says, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any uh, unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So what we find is he asked the angel to come back and give him more information. Here's the problem. The the angel doesn't give him any more information. 
He basically says, you're going to have a child, and what's going to happen is you need to set him apart for the purposes of God, so the wife needs to be careful to do all that I have called her to do, and that is to follow the Nazarite vow. He doesn't give him any, no more specifics, no more details, no further list for him to do. Now, this seems odd to me. Because the man prays, God answers his prayer, the angel comes back, but no more information. Why would God go through all that trouble if he's not going to get him any information? Why, why doesn't he give him any more? Well, let me say this first before I seek to try to answer that. Let me just say I can so identify with Manoah, can't you? That you and I, we come and we study the word of God and we find out what the will of God is. It's pretty gen- general principles in the word of God, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, great. Raise your kids in the admonition of Jesus Christ. Okay, we got that. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. And we read these principles and we're like, okay, let's go do it. And then we go to the word of God and it seems to lack a lot of specifics on exactly how I'm supposed to go about doing that, right? I'm okay, raise, raise, my child in the, raise the child in the way you should go. Okay, go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy uh, chapter six. Okay, teach them the word of God. Okay, we got all that. Now what? My child is now rebelling. What do I do? Okay, what do I do? How, how do I work this out? All my, ch- my children's relationships are different. All their personalities are different, yes? What do I do? What I could use is much more specific information by God to be able to fulfill this thing. Have you ever felt that way? You're going through trouble. Hey, God, God says, I am your all in all. I'm completely in control. Okay, God, but how do we determine this? It's, it's life and death. When we thought my dad was, we had to make the decision whether we were going to take him off life support or keep him on there. What does the Bible say at that? And you can't just look up ventilator chapter 2 verse 3 and begin to read it and go here's the steps that you have to take but yet we crave them don't we we crave them we want books to tell us exactly how to do it what we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do the problem is is god oftentimes doesn't work with us that way you know when i was um growing up um when i was young like last week um i was going through this and i gotta tell you i um I, I used to think that the people in the Old Testament had a great advantage over us. Did you ever did you grow up feeling that way at all? And, uh, and the reason I did is because it seems like God was so much more specific in giving them specific commands, right? Um, so what he would do is they would give them all these regulations. Go to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. It's full of regulations. You want to know what to eat? There you go. You want to know what, what not to eat? There it is. You want to know how to dress? There it is. You want to know how to, to help when and when you can't help your neighbor, you know, because his donkey falls in a ditch? There you go. You've got all this different kinds of stuff, everything all laid out there. And so it seems like in a way that life and following God was so much easier because he had so much more specific instructions and regulations to give. Even when they didn't give specific regulations, God seemed to even have an answer for that. It was the Urim and the Thummim of the, uh, uh, of the high priest. The Urim and the Thummim was a black and white rock. It was on, it was on their breastplate that they used as, as to, to adorn them. And what they would do is when they needed a yes or no answer from God, they would take these things, and I don't know how they worked them. I don't know if it was like Yahtzee or what it was, but they'd shake them up. They would let them roll, and it'd be like, yes or no. And you're like, hey, God, you know, every step of the way. Wouldn't that be incredible? Have you had that, right? Some of you, you know, God, should we, should we buy a house in this economy? Is it better for us to rent? Is it better for us to buy? What should we do? Here we go. Roll them. <laughs> yes. All right, cool. Or at least we're on the right page, right? Should we buy the house that is way too big and, 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 and ridiculously expensive to run and function in too many rooms and we can't afford it? Should we buy that one? Let's see what God says. <laughs> throw it, right? You throw it down, and it says clearly no. And you look at your wife, and she looks at you, and you say to yourself, 
Two out of three? All right. And so you want to go, maybe God's changed his mind through this whole thing. So this would be wonderful. Is there anybody here that wants more specifics on how to live out this whole Christian life with God? And I would love to have some big, giant book to be able to tell us what it does, but it just doesn't have it. So the question is, is those in the Old Testament, did they have some kind of advantage over us today? And what, I would, what I've come to, the conclusion is, no, not at all. See, the problem with having everything spelled out for you is that it doesn't always necessitate true dependence upon God. When things begin to go bad or things begin to go hard, instead of turning to God, you turn to your list. You turn to your filing box. You turn to whatever it is. And you don't have to trust in God at all. Why? Because you can depend on yourself. The ability of you getting through this difficulty is your ability to be able to follow step one, step two, step three, step four. And we see this as an example in the Old Testament with the religious leaders, don't we? Here are the religious leaders, man. They've got more rules, regulations than you can ever imagine for everything. And what do they do? Does it draw them closer to God or do they draw them away? It brings them to the point that they don't think they need God at all. In fact, they demonstrate that by crucifying his son, his savior, upon the cross. They don't need God at all. I can do it myself. And then there's also this misunderstanding on their part that they begin to think that they're far more holy than what they truly are. But yet, why? Why? Because they're keeping the list. And then when Jesus looks at them, what does he call them? He says, you guys are like, uh, or, or the word of God calls them, uh, he says that you're like whitewashed tombs filled with ed, dead men's bones. Fine is, is the, if God had given us a bunch of lists, don't you think your response and my response would not to be to depend on him, but just to be able to follow our own list and for us to be the Lord over our own life and for us to feel like we can handle it, it wouldn't be something that we would ultimately depend on him. Here in this story, God gave Manoah and his wife just enough boundaries and principles to set them on the right trajectory, but not enough for them to lack full dependence upon God. So that's why, God, oftentimes when you're sitting there and you're saying, God, how's this marriage supposed to look? And you go to Ephesians chapter 5, and, and obviously the Bible says more than just Ephesians chapter 5, but the direct thing, love your wife as Christ loves the church. And then you're sitting there and you want to go, okay, show me how Christ gave his life and died for the church. What does that mean? And there's not a whole lot listed under it. So what God is trying to get you and I to do is for you to take him at his word and then to sit back and say, what word you've given me may not be everything I want to know, but it's everything that I need to know for faith and full dependence on you. That's faith. So third thing that we see here in the word of God. First of all, we see that true faith, true faith takes God at his word. Secondly, true faith trusts general principles. And number three, true faith rests in his control. Now, the reason that we want all these regulations is, again, because we want to be in control. We want to be in control of our own life. Hey, if this is what I need to do, I'll do it. I don't need to depend on God. Well, he doesn't want to give up control. Manoah doesn't. So what he does is he goes back. Now, notice this. He goes back to the angel of the Lord, verse 15. It says, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, he says, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. And then verse 17, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that, so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Okay, so here's what's going on. Let me just break it down for you. What we see at this time of the history of God's people is they're still kind of mushing together their faith with God and pagan religion. 
That's how, they're, that's how they're acting upon God. So the first thing he wants to do to be able to maintain control over this messenger, all right, so their control over what's going on, is he tells him, he says, I'm going to fix you food. And th- because in their culture, if you fix somebody food, then they basically uh, had to do what it was that they wanted you to do. They, 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 they had to help you. You help them, now they help you. It's how they treated their gods. You go over to India, and if you take a trip over there, the people are bringing fruits and nuts and a bunch of things, and they're laying it before their sixth-armed woman god, all right? And why are they doing it? Because they think they're actually going to eat? No. Hey, listen, we're doing something for you. Now we expect and entitle for you to do something back. That's what this man was doing. He was going to the angel and says, if I feed them, then maybe I can get some control over the situation and do what I want. Second thing that he does, the angel says, no, I'm not going to let you feed me. Offer up a sacrifice, but don't give me any food. I won't eat your food. Here's what he says the second time. Then he goes to him, and he says, well, give me your name. Again, pagan religion. It was believed during that time, if you knew the name of a god or a name of a person, that you had some kind of weird mystic authority over that particular individual. And that's what he's trying to do. What is he trying to do again? He's trying to maintain control. And the angel basically says, I'm not giving you any of that. The angel of the Lord says, I am wonderful. What is he doing? Doesn't give him his name. But when he says, I'm wonderful, in essence, what he's saying is, I'm beyond your imagination. I'm greater than you could ever imagine. I'm far more wise. I'm far more wonderful. I'm far more glorious. I'm far more merciful. I'm far more anything than your brain can even get your, your arms around. So then here's what he does. He's moving him from regulations to revelation. He said, the key for you to live a life of faith is not for you, catch this, is not for you to have more regulations of know what to do, but for you to know who it is that I am. So he reveals himself to him. Now notice what happens in the scriptures. Verse 19, so Manoah took the, go- the young goat with a, with, a, with a grain offering, and he offered it on the rock of the Lord to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Do you see what's happening? This angel is speaking to them. They're not even sure who he is. All of a sudden, the fire uh, goes up from the altar, and he spontaneously combust right up with it. Now, notice the result of them. Now, Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And he says, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Most believe that this was Jesus Christ that had appeared to them at this particular point. They go, we've seen God and we need to die. They know enough. You cannot be in the presence of God and live. But then, of course, whacked out Manoah is settled down by his very patient and stable wife. Okay? Men, we understand that, right? So she comes and says, but his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have accepted a burnt offering and a grain. He wouldn't have. He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from your hand, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Do you see what she's saying? She is the same one that fell on the face of uh, on her hands before God. But notice something: her husband sees one side of God; she sees both sides of God. What he sees is this God who is holy and powerful and mighty, and he's scared to death that, God, that he's going to die. What she sees is the same thing. That's why she bowed. She sees a mighty, holy, great God that she needs to be fearful of and that is, has, is full of holiness. But she also sees a loving, compassionate, merciful, 
God who is willing to make a sacrifice for her on her behalf for him, them to have a right relationship. She sees both of these things. Here's what I want you to see in this. So oftentimes, so oftentimes, we want to gather for ourselves preachers, teachers, authors who are going to tell us more and more and more of what we ought to do, of how we deal with death, of how we deal with life, of how we raise children. And people will flock to church, churches like that. You understand? But what I want to let you know is the majority of so much of that that we hear may be good advice, but it's not, it, it may be good stuff, but it's not necessarily God's stuff. God's book for you and for me is not filled with all of those specific details. Why? Because the book is filled with details about who he is. He doesn't want you to know and have a whole list of to-dos and to-dotes. The key to true faith is seeing and knowing who he is. You're not here, listen to me, you're not here to try to live a better life. You want to live a life unto God. You want to know him. Paul says, I want to know him, right? And I'm sitting there going, Paul, if you don't know him, then who knows him? And he wants to know God. The reason we show up this morning is not to do better, not to find out more specifics, is to find out the general truths that God has for us, his general will for us to lean into him, to press into him by faith. And the way that that faith is built the most is to get the clearest understanding and picture of who God is. My job is not for you to give you a list of how to do your finances better. You may want it, you may crave it, but the gracious, most wonderful thing that I have been called to you before is to give you the clearest picture of the nature of God that I possibly can. And that is how we trust in him. And that is how we have faith in him. And one of the clearest pictures that we have of him in all is on the cross, dying and bleeding, not for his sins, but for your sins and for my sins. And he would give up his life, an innocent man that he would humble himself to the point of death and death on the cross. He's telling us something about him. He's telling us that he gives it all for us. He gave it all for us. So why could we not then trust him in the midst of the difficulties? How could we not trust him then with our entire lives? The more that we see him, the more our faith abounds. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you so much, God, for today. And Lord, I know just right now that there are people who are here God, all of us, we just need to learn to take you at your word, just to believe fully and completely in the word that you have given us. God, we need to be people who not only trust in your word fully, but we need to be people who are okay with the general, with the general truths that you give us, some specifics, but general truths that you give us that we can, by faith, walk with you and lean on you and press into you each and every day. And God, the only way to do that is for each and every one of us to seek your word and to learn more about you. God, I pray that when we come into the house of God, it's not, God, I need a specific answer. But I, I pray that our hearts, every time we come to the house of God, is God, show me more of you. Show me more of you. Build my faith all the more in you. Would you do that for us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I'm just going to take a moment just to do business with God before we take of the Lord's Supper. So in your hearts, do business with him. Confess sin up to date, whatever it might be. I'll be down here if you want to pray. If you say, hey, man, I want to know what it means to be saved. I want to be saved. I'd love to talk with you about that and through that. So let's just respond.
Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time, if they will, for the observance of the Lord's Supper. We now come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which was given to us to celebrate in memory of his broken body and his shed blood. It is said that on that night before he was betrayed at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were celebrating, that he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given to you. So when we come at this point, when we come and we take of the Lord's Supper and we're about to eat of this bread, what we're doing is we're expressing our faith and our trust and the broken body of Jesus Christ. We know that he took our beating. We know that he took our punishment. So it all comes down to this. Everything that was said is in light of what we're doing right now, in light of the gospel and his broken body. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. And God, we are, you are worthy of all praise. God, we thank you for taking our punishment. We thank you for being our substitute. God, we're not worthy, but we are not worthless in that you sought to save us and rescue us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
John 6, 58 says, This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as our fathers ate and died, but he that eats this bread shall live forever. Let's go ahead and take. And on that same night, our Lord took the cup, and having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my blood which was shed for you. Through the whole Old Testament, we just see blood being shed, animals being sacrificed, hundreds of thousands of millions of animals being shed. And what we find is that even though the shedding of that blood of those animals uh, could appease the wrath of God, it could not satisfy the wrath of God. What it took was a God-man. A man had to die for man, but not any man. He had to be sinless, therefore he had to be God. So a man, fully God and fully man, gave his life on the cross. He was the Lamb of God, which came to take away the sins of the world, and his blood was shed. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we've realized from the Scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you, not just with our lips, but with all of us, all that we are, God, we thank you for what you've done for us. And God, we don't live for you because we think it's going to get us into heaven.